Well, thank you very much, uh, Pastor Toby, for those gracious words of introduction. It is good to be back here again at Abundant Life. Thank you for the invitation and for this weekend. Uh, we started in Friday night and Saturday morning, yesterday afternoon, and these services, it's been a good time together. And I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, at uh, Baylor University, a large Christian research university dedicated to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and seeking to bear witness to that, and from all of your other brothers and sisters in the faith in the Lone Star State, Texas. It's good to be over here. Thank you for the invitation to be with you. I want you to open the Word of God with me. It's also be on the screens. To Luke, the fifth chapter. We're going to be reading one of the miracle stories of the Lord Jesus. Luke chapter 5, I'll be reading from the twelfth verse. If I were to write over this message a title or a superscription or a name for it, I think I would call it the contagious Jesus, because that's what this is about. Luke chapter 5, verse 12 and following. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering from your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Right in the center of this is a focus. I am willing. Be cleansed. Would you be seated in the presence of the Lord? I, uh, I can't. I can't remember if I uh, have them or if I gave them away. I, I wish I could remember, but the problem is it was so many years ago that I just don't remember if I still have them or gave them to somebody else. Oh, I'm talking about the cooties. Does anybody remember the cooties? Yeah. Some people remember the cooties. It was a kind of invisible infection that you would give to someone else when I was in elementary school. I don't know where they started, but somehow you'd run up and touch somebody on the playground and say, you've got the cooties. Or the cafeteria line, you'd touch them. The best place to do it was in class when you could touch somebody in front of you and there wasn't anything they could do about it till 
after class was over. And I, I really can't remember all these decades later whether I still have them or the last thing I gave them away. You may want to be careful shaking hands with me after church because uh, our passage today <laughs> interestingly brings up that idea. And we spend a lot of time worried about the cooties. I remember the 2008 proposed swine flu epidemic when we were all supposed to wash our hands as long as it took to sing happy birthday or twinkle, twinkle, little star to keep from giving somebody else the cooties. In fact, that's why we spend more than a billion dollars a year in the United States on antibacterial soap, even though there's some question whether or not it does what it's supposed to do. A friend of mine had a wife who had surgery hip replacement, and they, they, they pondered whether to have it in an old, famous teaching hospital downtown Dallas or a suburban new hospital because they were concerned that the cooties in the old hospital might be worse, lingering in the hallways. Sometimes we should be worried about them, and we're not. You know that restaurant menu? If someone sneezes on it, the cooties live there for 18 hours. Oh, and that lemon wedge in your iced tea at the restaurant. <laughs> Journal of Environmental Health says 60% of those have <laughs> the cooties. <laughs> I think I'll take mine without lemon. Thank you very much. But we meet someone in this text. Looking back out at us from sacred scripture who had something far worse than the cooties. He's introduced without a name, incognito, unidentified, anonymous. He's simply a man full of leprosy. Matthew's account of this tells us that this was immediately after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke, who was evidently a physician, uses the word full of leprosy. This disease was not on the front porch. It was not in its prefatory period. This was no prelude. It had invaded this man. And that means that the digits were falling off of his hands, the appendages off of his face. It was an awful consuming disease. He was full of leprosy. And that defined him. If you read Luke's Gospel this afternoon, you'll find that up to this point, 24 of the 25 people who show up have a name. This man doesn't get a name. He's identified by the weakest and the worst and the most difficult thing about him. He's simply called the man full of leprosy. Many of us were made to read in high school or somewhere else Nathaniel Hawthorne's famous American novel, The Scarlet Letter. Remember the story of Heather Prynne? There she was, <laughs> compromised in that New England village, and she had to wear a letter A the rest of her life. In fact, it robbed her of her identity. She became simply the lady with the scarlet letter. It is a cruel and unusual thing we do to people when we put them in a box, define them, stereotype them, label them with the weakest thing about them. 
We don't redeem them when they become synonymous with the worst moment of their life. Now we do it. We say, oh, there goes the ex-con. Oh, there's the addict. Oh, they've been divorced. Oh, this, that. You fill in the blank. And it defines them. This man is not in the New Testament because he was defined by the worst moment of his life. He's in the New Testament because one day Jesus touched him. He took his driver's license into the Galilee Driver's License Bureau. It had an L on it. It didn't mean learner. It meant leprosy. But when he took it in and was inspected by the public health department, they stamped it C, cleansed by the power of Jesus Christ. And that's what he does. He takes people who are defined by the weakest and the worst, and he touches them and he says, cleansed by his power. I wonder if there's one somebody here today who just may be wandered in here and you feel like I've been labeled, marginalized, isolated, set apart. Uh, they only know me because of the worst thing about my life. The good news of the gospel is that's not how Jesus deals with people. He deals with them by grace and touches and gives them a name. This man, but, 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 but notice this. This man had to come to Jesus with intensity. Luke says he fell on his face. Now, maybe you have the idea that in biblical times, people were just always running around falling on their face. But they weren't. In fact, even more so than today, to run, no less than to fall on your face, was considered undignified. In my mind, I see that crowd of thousands that were watching Jesus coming down from preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, splitting like the Red Sea as this leper runs right up in the midst of them. If you read the book of Leviticus, he wasn't even supposed to be there. But you know what? He came to a moment of intensity when he didn't care. Here was his moment to be made whole in the presence of one who had the power to make him whole. You ever get amused about what folks get intense about? I, I, I do. I maybe... I'm different, but I, I was with a friend the other day, thought I knew them well. In the presence of a famous person, my friend climbed all over everybody to get an autograph. Intense. Oh, we get intense about things. Big concert coming, camp out all night. Get a ticket. That's intense. We know the words to every song, listen to it every minute, but got to get a ticket. Or... That Friday after Thanksgiving, break down the doors. This year somebody trampled to death in a story. Intense. <laughs> I wonder if we ever get that intense about what we need from the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes when it comes to the spiritual life, we don't bring to the higher, holier, and heavier the intensity that we bring to the lower, the lesser, and the lighter. And then we read these Bible stories and we say, wonder why nothing like that ever happens to me. I wonder if we've ever become serious enough in our intensity that it could happen to us. In fact, I really wonder as a preacher all over this country from week to week, if we're not a lot more interested in our dignity than we are our deliverance. So we don't want to look intense. There's another interesting word here. 
It's a word of persistence. This man full of leprosy wasn't just intense. One of Luke's favorite words found in the gospel by Dr. Luke over and over pops up here. It says he implored him. Literally, he kept on imploring him. It was one thing to divide that crowd who ran away terrorized because there was a leper in their midst, but it was another thing once he fell on his face over and over again to beg Jesus. If you want to pour meaning into this biblical word, look where this same word is used elsewhere in Luke. It's used of the uh, demons that inhabited the Gerasene demoniac. When Jesus was about to cast them out, they kept on imploring him, don't send us back to hell. <laughs> That's persistence. <laughs> or it's the word used of that father at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' nine impotent disciples could not cast out the demon from his son. It, you know, it made his son sometimes fall in the water and sometimes fall in the fire. And his father saw Jesus coming and he knew this was his only chance. And he kept on imploring him. If I could sit down at your kitchen table over a cup of coffee right now and get to know you a little better, I might ask, is there anything about you that you keep on imploring God about? I mean, it's not just a flash of momentary inspiration. But you keep on imploring God with a persistency. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't care what anybody thought you needed the power of God? You didn't care. No, oh, I have. I could go back a number of times. I, I can look back in one instance when my older son was a little boy. He'd borrowed a bicycle uh, from a friend in the subdivision where we lived, and he wasn't used to that bicycle. It had handbrakes and stuff. He wasn't used to it. And he went right through an intersection, and a car uh, hit him. And his head broke against uh, a curb. And it was during an interesting week in my life because the Sunday before that, the pastor of the largest church in America had called and asked me to come and preach on Sunday night. He said, our people want to hear you. I couldn't believe it. I was an instructor at another seminary. And I, man, I started studying myself silly that night to get ready to preach at that big church. That was Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. When that accident happened Thursday, took our son to the hospital, and they looked him over and said, Watch him. He got worse on Friday. Took him back again, emergency room. Looked him over and said, Watch him closely. By Saturday, something was... Badly wrong. We, we didn't know what. And Sunday afternoon, finally, a pediatric neurosurgeon looked at him and said, he's got an epidural hematoma, and if we don't operate right now, you're going to lose him. I said, wait, about brain surgery? He said, yeah. I said, I want to get a second opinion. He said, you don't have time. You know what? <laughs> I called that famous preacher and said, catch you later. I won't be there tonight. And right there in the public corridor of that hospital, I didn't care who was watching. I didn't care whether or not I was Dr. Gregory. I didn't care what anybody thought. I implored God. Some of us are so concerned, more with dignity than deliverance, that we miss what God may do for us because we don't want to be intense 
and persistent. Over and over again, you find in the Word of God, keep on, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. If you want the delivery that you need from whatever it is. Now, here's another interesting thing in this passage. You notice it says, in the middle of all of this, he, he, he saw Jesus. That saw him. Well, sure he saw him. He'd just given the Sermon on the Mount. Thousands of people uh, were looking at him. In fact, I'd argue that Jesus was the most looked at person in his world. Thousands of people looked at Let me go further than that. Jesus is the most looked at person in human history. If you go to the great art museums of the world, the Louvre, the British Museum, the National Museum, wherever it is, there are more paintings of him than any other person in history. He's the centerpiece of Western art. You go to Catholic churches all over the world, a billion Catholics, there he is looked at on a crucifix. You go to Protestant churches and in Sunday school classrooms and houses and Bibles, pictures of Jesus. He's the most looked at person in human history. But here's the catch. Not everybody looking at him is seeing him. (laughs) There's a distinction between looking at Jesus (laughs) and really... Seeing him. In fact, John 3 tells the famous story of a religious man, an old man who came to Jesus and complimented him. And Jesus said, if you're not born again, you can't even see the reign of God. Not everything that looks sees. We've got a little dog named uh, Phoebe. It's a schnoodle. Uh, combination of a schnauzer and a poodle. Smart little dog. A little dog sits there, but when the dog is looking at me, looking at me, the dog is not really seeing me. That dog's not looking at me and saying, well, there's Joel. He's exegeting Luke 5. <laughs> looking but not seeing. I wonder, have you ever really not just looked at but seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He's looking back at you. If you're in Paris, you can go up on Montmartre, and there in the huge glistening white cathedral, Sacré-Cœur, is the biggest face of Jesus in the world. It's a mural. It's, it's really a kind of mosaic, and it's gigantic, just the face of Jesus. Interesting thing about his eyes, anywhere you go in that great cathedral, he's looking (laughs) straight at you. It's a trick of perspective. I've tried to get away from it. (laughs) Go hide behind a pillar or a column. No. Even at an acute angle, he's still looking straight at you. Yes, he is. I wonder if you're seeing the one... Who's looking at you. Well, here comes the moment of conversation from this man who really sees Jesus. And interestingly, he's half right and half wrong with a half true, half false statement. Did you see it? Lord, he opens his mouth. (laughs) If you're willing, you can 
make me clean. He didn't question the power of Jesus, but he questioned the willingness in his own case. I almost wonder if Jesus wouldn't rather that he said it the other way around, really. I know you're willing if you have the power. At least that would have granted that Jesus was a man of goodwill, bona fides. But instead, he said, I know you got the power, but I don't know if you're willing to do it for me. You know, preaching here and there across the country every week, I sometimes get the feeling that we get together to read these old stories about Jesus and we have a memorial service about what Jesus used to do. Oh, isn't it wonderful to look back across the centuries at what he used to do? But then some folks don't feel that he is willing to do now what he did then. That is, we feel like, well, he was willing to do stuff for lepers like this, but not, not for me. My situation's too complicated. You just don't understand it, Joel. Uh, and, and we act as if our life is so messed up that we'd make God get dizzy and fall off his throne. No, he's willing. Or we think that God was willing to do it for certain super saints. Here's a Nelson Mandela or a Mother Teresa or Bishop Tutu or somebody. He's willing and able for them, but not for some little old somebody like me. No, no, he didn't. Or we remember somebody in our own family for whom Jesus was so real that it's like they went around talking to him all day long, singing hymns in the kitchen or quoting scripture. And yeah, he would do it for them, but, 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 but not for me. And there's a sense in which we make an idol out of our own mess. And we say, you know, huh, yeah, he's willing for others, but not for me. Let me assure you that the very heart of the gospel is that whatever your particular sin, failure, trespass, whatever your mistake, whatever your treachery is, he is both willing and able to touch you. That's what the gospel is about. And if you're seated here this morning and saying, no, I'm the great exception in all of history. No, you're not. That's the reason that gospel songs are so beloved. Fanny Crosby, sitting as a blind woman up in her parlor in the Midwest, wrote that song, This is my story. This is my song. That would have just lost something if she'd said, this is everybody else's story and everybody else's song. No, David didn't say the Lord is some folks' shepherd. It makes all the difference to be able to say the Lord is my shepherd. And that's where I really do wish I could sit down and talk to you and say, are you willing to believe that in your situation he is both willing and able? Well, the next thing that happened is, a, is, is what I'd call an audible gasp moment. You know what an audible gasp moment is. You, you, you've had them. You go to the circus and there's somebody up on a tight wire. and They wobble. They lose their footing and they fall off. And even though there's a net, everybody does what? Goes, <gasps> you know. You go to YouTube. Here's a little girl at the zoo. Leans too forward for over a wild animal cage and falls in the moat. You can hear everybody go, <gasps> a little running back, Friday night lights, playing football somewhere, hit by a big 
linebacker crumples on the brown grass of autumn like a piece of Kleenex, and you can hear everybody go, <gasps> It was like that in this picture when Jesus reached out and touched the leper. Everybody watching went, <gasps> You know what they were thinking? Here's this wonderful young preacher from Nazareth. Never heard a preacher like him. Been healing people. But you know these young preachers, they're just too enthusiastic. And now he's going and giving himself leprosy by touching this man. Do you know what they didn't understand? Jesus is more contagious than anything he touches. You see, the gospel... <laughs> You only gave him one thing one time for six hours from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. on Good Friday. You infected him. But other than that, his power is more contagious than anything he touches. Here's a greedy person. I mean a person so greedy that they hold every dime until <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt turn, uh, Franklin Roosevelt turns red in the face. They squeeze every nickel until the buffalo snorts. And yet, they come to Jesus. And the strangest, they don't make him the greedy Jesus. Strangest thing is, he begins to relax the grasp of greed. And the more they're with him, the more generous they become. Here's an addict. I don't care whatever kind of addict you want to call it. Many of us are addicted in some way to a substance or to something we look at at midnight when we think nobody's watching. We're addicted. You bring that to Jesus, do you think you turn him into the addicted Jesus? No. You get around him, close to him, spend time with him, talk to him, read about him. You don't make him the addicted Jesus. No, he'll infect you with an increasing case of purity. If you're just in his presence, he is more contagious than anything you bring. He's the contagious Jesus. A lot of people misunderstand the Christian life. They think, well, all you folks in our church, you've got a long list of rules. Some churches longer list than other churches. That's not what it's about. It's about getting close to the contagious Jesus. And when you get close to him, he gives you a case of what he has. He touched him. The contagious Jesus. <laughs> there can be strange power in a touch. <laughs> Did you read the story of Analia Buter down in Argentina in the state of Chaco outside of uh, <laughs> Buenos Aires? She and her husband Fabian had three children. They were expecting their fourth. And when the baby was to be born, they gave her a general anesthesia for some reason. She was asleep that time. And the baby was born prematurely, a little more than a pound, the size of a big man's hand. One of those sad things when the medical attendants around her Saw no life in the baby. In fact, didn't get a birth certificate, got a death certificate. Analia was asleep. They put the baby in a little wooden uh, 
casket and took it down to the basement of the hospital, put it in a refrigerator in a morgue. About ten hours later, when Analia was fully awake, she wanted, obviously, to, to, see, to see the baby in Where's the baby? And they had to tell her the news, and she begged. took two more hours of cajoling hospital to go get to the basement. They went down there, got the little box out of the refrigerator. Fabian pried the lid off of it, and there was this little baby in the morgue refrigerator outside of Buenos Aires, <laughs> just blue with cold even. Analia reached down to touch the baby, and the baby let out a little cry. The baby was alive. And it took a touch, a loving touch, to bring out that life. <laughs> Baby's still alive last time I checked on the web. Not perfect, but alive. I know about someone stronger than that. It may be that here on this January Sunday, somebody's here and basically a lot of folks have put you away. <laughs> Finished, done for. I know a Lord who has a powerful touch. He can pry the top off all kinds of situations. And reach out and touch. And against all odds, there's new life. Somebody today needs the touch of the contagious Jesus. Let him give you what he has. Wholeness for brokenness. Forgiveness for guilt. Purpose for meaninglessness, fullness for emptiness. It's Bill Gaither some decades ago. Wrote a little gospel song, The Whole World Sings Now. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that fills my soul. Somebody here today. Needs his touch. Would you bow with me all over the church for a moment? Our musicians are going to come. But with your head and heart bowed before the Lord for just this moment, I didn't come over here just to make a, a pretty speech about a Bible story. I came over here to plead for you to let Jesus do something just like that for you. I don't know what it is you need, and you know what? You may not know what it is you need, and that is okay. You may just know with insistence and urgency, I need him to touch me. Heart and home, family, life, church, work, I don't know, but somebody here says that just, you know, I've never felt his touch. I, I, I'd like him to touch me. Somebody else just with a broken place in life. The gospel said the word is near you, even in your mouth. If you'll confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and 
believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be rescued, saved. So I wonder if there are not those here this morning who for the very first time need to say, Jesus, touch me, touch me right now, touch me in a way that puts my life back together again. But then there's others here who say, yeah, I I know his touch. But I've become a stranger to it. And oh, I need that touch again. He's that kind of Lord. I'm going to pray, but I, I, with no one at all, nobody's going to come to anybody, coerce anybody, do anything. I wonder if there's anybody, because I really do want to know. I came all the way over here to bring this message. I want to know, is there anybody in the hundreds of people together here who'd say, Joel, pray for me that he'll touch me at just the point I need today. Would you slip your hand up wherever you are, here, here, all over this place. Thank you, dozens and dozens of people. All right. Would you stand to your feet with your head bowed? I'm going to pray. Everybody on your feet. He touched me, Lord, Lord, Lord. Here we are, your, your creation, and many of us your children. We need you. To touch us. We're here, Lord, not, not to say we're going to act smug and complacent in our own dignity, but Lord, we need deliverance. Some from sin and guilt, some from misdirection, some we some of us can't even name it. It's just profoundly broken. And we need your touch. We ask this morning that the power of the Holy Spirit might minister and speak and break and heal in this place. In Jesus' name.